So in that last verse that Adam read for us, Genesis 21, 33, um, we get the first mention in the Bible of the God as the everlasting God. Abraham literally calls him the God of eternity. Now, what did Abraham mean when he made that statement? Well, as we just read in sort of a, the high points of his life, he had just received testimony that God was with him. He had also recently rejoiced over the birth after 25 years of waiting of his long-awaited son, Isaac, in fulfillment of God's promise back in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham was 100 years old at that point, having waited since he was 75. And he was still waiting for God to keep some of his promises, wasn't he? Because he was not yet in the land that God had promised him. And God actually said in Genesis 15 that it would be 400 years at least before they ever got into that land. Of course, that's in the book of Exodus. He was still waiting, waiting in faith. Why? Because we read in chapter 17 a number of times where God made a promise to him as an everlasting covenant. To his offspring, to himself, he was giving an everlasting covenant. Therefore, when Abraham called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, that didn't come out of nowhere. It came on the basis of what God had already told Abraham that he would be the object of an everlasting covenant with God. And he had already seen some of that covenant begin to be fulfilled, namely in the birth of Isaac. And so Abraham was waiting and hoping, and he built an altar again as a, as a, as a monument to God's grace in that moment. He confessed his faith in the everlasting God. That no amount of time, not even centuries, could stop God from doing all that he had promised to be and do in his covenant. So we come to see this morning the attribute of God's eternity. The idea that God has no beginning in time, no ending in time, no succession of moments through time. He's always existed in the past, he exists now in the present, and he will always exist in the future. He never began, he knows no growth or age, nor will he ever cease to be. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. So we've considered in our sermon series different attributes of God. We're walking through characteristics of who God reveals himself to be in the Bible. We have been considering that question in the Westminster Catechism, number four, which asks the question, what is God? And it answers in the following way. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And we're taking a week at a time to unpack that statement, looking at basically one characteristic at a time. And in order not to fail to put meat on the bone, so to speak, we've tried to see God's attributes in action. That is, in the stories of Scripture and in the lives of people in the Bible. Now, in previous weeks, we've already considered the spirituality of God, the justice of God, the infinity of God. And so we come this week to the eternality of God. What does it mean that God is an eternal spirit? Is that not the same as what we talked about last week, that he's an infinite spirit? Isn't that kind of the same thing? Well, yeah, kind of. 
But there is a little bit of a difference between the two phrases. In a sense, the terms are related, so it's easy to understand why we would think of them as similar. But God's infinity has several different aspects to it. So hang with me for just about two minutes while I try to give us a distinction between infinity and eternality so we understand why we're spending some time thinking about this particular attribute this morning. We can speak of God's infinity in a lot of different ways. First of all, we can speak of his infinity with respect to our understanding, right? God is incomprehensible. He, can, he cannot be fully understood apart from himself. He, he himself, he alone knows who he is in, in a complete and comprehensive sense. But we can also speak of God's infinity with respect to his own being. That is, he is an infinite being. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. We are dependent. We are finite. We are not infinite in that way. We can also speak of his infinity with respect to space. He, he's immense. He fills all things. He can't be confined to any one place or limited by any boundary. He's omnipresent. He's fully present in every location in his creation. Now, we saw all those aspects of God's infinity last week in our sermon on Acts 17. We looked at God's incomprehensibility. There was an altar to an unknown God. They had no idea who he fully was. We, we saw his, his self-existence and his self-sufficiency. We saw his immensity, that he fills all things. However, God's infinity can also spoken, be spoken of in a slightly different way than what we've already seen, and that is namely in relationship to time. And when it comes to this aspect, we move into the characteristic of God's eternality. Now, let me just say up front, we have a hard time with a lot of God's attributes because we're the creator, creature, creature and he's the creator. But perhaps there's no greater deal of difficulty than with thinking about the eternality of God because we are creatures that exist in time and God is the creator who exists outside of it. So as temporal creatures, grasping eternity is really something that's beyond us in terms of experience, but that doesn't mean we can't understand it in some ways. Now, as we've been considering each of God's attributes embedded in a specific story of Scripture, this morning we're turning to the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And what I want to do is walk through chapter 22, because chapter 22 is what comes on the heels of Abraham's designation of God as the everlasting God. So what will it mean for us? What did it mean for Abraham to live with the knowledge that God was the everlasting God? What does it mean for us to walk with the everlasting God? What does it mean for us to trust in the everlasting God? And so for that answer, we're going to turn to the narrative that immediately follows verse 21 or chapter 21, verse 33, namely chapter 22, which is a familiar text. It's where God calls upon Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. So what will it mean for us to respond to God as the everlasting God? Three points this morning. First of all, respond to the everlasting God. Respond to the everlasting God. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, all the things we've seen so far, his declaration that he's the everlasting God, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here, am, here I am. He said, 
Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Picture the moment. Baby Isaac lying in Abraham's arms. What do you have? You have the hope of the world. No Isaac, no Israel. No Israel, no Christ. No Christ, no hope. No salvation. So whatever you do, Abraham, please don't drop this kid. (laughs) And then we read God's own words. Take your son, your only son, and kill him. What? We are told that after these things, that is the events of Genesis 21, when God is called the everlasting God, God tests Abraham again. Now Moses, the human author of Genesis, doesn't say that God punished Abraham or that he tempted Abraham, but that he tested Abraham. Why does this matter? Well, any discerning reader is going to begin this chapter and wonder, why is God commanding child sacrifice? What an awful God. He is. But notice, God is not punishing Abraham, nor is he tempting Abraham. He's testing Abraham. Yahweh tests. Molech tempts. God commands Abraham to do this for one reason, to answer one specific question. You've said I'm the everlasting God. Prove it. Prove it. Show me that you trust me. Now, there are so many instances in Abraham's life where God tested him to see if his faith was more than a theory. His behavior often made no sense apart from faith. Think about his selfless generosity to Lot in giving him the first choice of territory in Genesis 13. That was incredibly selfless and took faith to do. In faith, he also demonstrated his loyalty to Lot in chapter 14 by rescuing him at his own personal risk from a powerful coalition that far outnumbered his little group. And yet Abraham did not always pass the tests. He'd failed at least three times previously. At the core of God's promise to Abraham was a seed, right? A child. And in previous chapters, we see that although Abraham never staggered at the promise through decisive unbelief, as Romans 4.20 says, nevertheless, the delay in the arrival of the child was a great test of Abraham and Sarah's faith. 25 years is a long time to wait for the fulfillment of a promise. Years pass without a son, and the ages of Abraham and Sarah, humanly speaking, made the prospect less likely. So they took matters into their own hands a number of times. Abraham lied about his wife twice in Genesis 12 and chapter 20 to protect himself and her, and he slept with his wife's servant in Genesis 16 because he doubted God would keep his word. And of course, Ishmael gave birth to Hagar, or Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. Sarah, who'd received the promise along with Abraham, offered Hagar, her servant girl, to become a surrogate to give birth in her place. And the consequence of that union led to disaster, as sin always does. 
Nevertheless, God was patient with Abraham. And more times than not, Abraham did recognize God as the everlasting God and believed he would keep his word. In Genesis 12, when God called Abraham to leave Ur, he didn't specify where to go. He just said, get up and get out. Abraham had to exchange the known for the unknown. And that isn't easy. But God gave him a number of I wills and I shalls that proved to be enough for him. This is the way the writer to the Hebrews summarizes this moment in Abraham's life in Hebrews 11, 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, what was it that led him to trust God in these ways, albeit imperfectly? It's because of God's eternality. And because God is the everlasting God, the eternal God, we have an unfailing and eternal word that we can trust every time he speaks. Isaiah 40, 6 to 8, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. He knew he had made an everlasting covenant with him, and he was never going to break that promise. Matthew 5, 18 and 24, 35, For truly, Jesus says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It's that confidence that gave Abraham the power to trust an unknown future to a known God. And brothers and sisters, it's the same way with us. The way we respond to the everlasting God is by trusting in His everlasting Word. If we have an everlasting Word from our God that will never be shaken, that will never be undone, that will never pass away, then we have a rock on which we build our lives. And our faith is not in vain. Our faith is not futile because our God is not lying. God is the everlasting God and his word is an everlasting word. And we are encouraged to trust it. And so Abraham trusted it even when his word called him to sacrifice the son of promise. Secondly, not only do we respond to the everlasting God, but we rely on the everlasting God. Rely on the everlasting God. Picking up at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the word, the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both, they went, both of them together. Now, twice in these verses, Abraham expresses his reliance on God. First, in verse 5, Abraham believes Isaac will return with him. He says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I and the boy will come again to you. Wait, Abraham, you're going to go kill him. You're coming back. He ain't. 
No, I and the boy will come back with you. But secondly, in verse 8, when asked by Isaac regarding the whereabouts of a sacrifice for a lamb, as for a lamb, Abraham assures that God will provide one. Now, the author to the Hebrews, again, helps us with some interpretive commentary about what's going on in Abraham's mind here. In Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19, we read, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So what was going on in Abraham's mind? Well, according to the inspired author of to Hebrews, he was thinking, look, I'm coming back with my son even if God has to raise him from the dead after I sacrifice him. That's what Abraham was thinking. Now, how does the author know Abraham thought that? How does the author know Abraham considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead? Well, he didn't just get it out of nowhere. We are given two reasons in this text. First, that's what happened in the moment, at least figuratively. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says. He did figuratively get him back. Look at verses 9 to 11. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Isaac was as good as dead, and then God intervened. But there's a second reason that Abraham believed Isaac would be raised. Because Abraham's life had been defined by a resurrection of shorts. Think about it with me. Perhaps on the way to the mountain, as he was there holding his son's hand, walking up Mount Moriah, he remembered that even though he and his wife were old and advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, nevertheless, God promised to give him a son. This is the way Hebrews describes it again, Hebrews 11, 11, and 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was just past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand of the seashore. Abraham was as good as dead. He had a son. Perhaps he remembered Sarah's laugh when she heard the promise after I am worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Perhaps he even remembered the gentle rebuke. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Perhaps he looked back on his life, and for the first time he saw what there had always been. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. Life out of death, life out of death, life out of death. He thought God's going to do it again. God's going to do it again. So perhaps upon hearing this strange, strange request... Abraham's life flashed before his eyes and he came to the right conclusion. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Brothers and sisters, I want you to remember that your life is a resurrection life as well. In a sense, the hardest thing, 
that God will ever do for you, and I speak in a human way, everything, nothing is hard for God. But the hardest thing God will ever do for you is already done. He raised you from spiritual death by the power of the Holy Spirit under the preaching of the gospel to embrace Christ in a saving way. And you got health challenges? You got difficulties in your relationships? You got depression? Is anything too hard for the Lord? See, if we remember our salvation and what it took for God to save us, the fact that we had to be raised spiritually from the dead, then we are immensely helped and comforted in our lesser needs that may feel huge in our lives, but are not our biggest needs. Abraham's life and our life was just one example of resurrection after another. From the moment God had called Abraham out of Ur, God had demonstrated his resurrection power over and over and over again. And that's why the author of the Hebrews can say, Abraham, just like Isaac and Sarah were as good as dead. Abraham had no son, yet from him were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven. What a mercy from God. In short, Abraham believed Isaac would die and rise again because Abraham knew that he himself had already died and rose again. He and Sarah had a son. Is one resurrection too hard for the Lord? Of course not, so why not another one? So Abraham, in faith, marched up Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son. And when you think about it this way, relying on our everlasting God just makes sense, doesn't it? Especially when he has given us an even surer testimony in the resurrection of Christ. The eternal Son of God, who is before all things, entered time and became subject to the conditions of time and taking on a human nature. According to his humanity, Christ was subject to time. He sustained the universe as God, even as he lived in time as a man. As man, he lived in time and had a past, present, and future. But as eternal God, in need of nothing, knowing all things, possessing all things, he existed outside of time. And yet he entered time so that we might have eternal life. He willingly subjected himself to all the realities of time in order to give us the gift of eternal life. See, brothers and sisters, God's eternality is not just an immense comfort in the, in the fact that God is God and is from everlasting to everlasting. He's the same. But also it has implications for the way we think about our lives. Even though we are not eternal as God is eternal, nevertheless, the eternality of God has important implications for how we think about our eternal destiny. Hell is so horrible and heaven is so happy because it's eternal. Hell is horrible because it's unquenchable fire. It's a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, according to Jesus. In hell, it will feel as though there is only time. Slow time. In this world, think about it. When we suffer, what does it feel like in regards to time? Stand still. Inches along. Creeps along even if it's just the small inconvenience of a traffic light. When we're suffering, we're more sensitive to the seconds. Kids, you know this. Ever been really bored in class? And you're just staring at the clock? Will it ever move? Look at that second hand. It's taking a minute to move. 
In hell, a second feels like a year. But in heaven, a year feels like a second. Time flies when you're having fun. You know that. Imagine how time will seem to evaporate in heaven because of the joy we will enter and experience. In heaven, our joy will only increase. Our joy will never end, and with each moment greater than the one before, our joy will skyrocket. However, for those in hell, despair will only increase with each moment being worse than the one before. But our everlasting God provides a way of escape in Christ. And so we come finally and thirdly to our third point, receive from the everlasting God. Receive from the everlasting God. This chapter is not mainly about Abraham's sacrifice for God. This chapter is mainly about God's sacrifice for Abraham. Because chapter 22, verse 12, through the end of the chapter, says that. Look at verse 12. Again, we'll read through verse 14. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy. This is the angel of the Lord interrupting Abraham as the knife is over Isaac. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. He didn't mark that place. The Lord can be trusted to show that he was faithful. He marked it as a place where God rescues, as a place where God gets us out of impossible situations by his amazing grace. Now, Abraham's action did confirm for God his faithful obedience to God, that it was genuine, that it came from a heart that truly trusted him. It wasn't just merely theory. In Genesis 15, 6, we're told that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, this key verse is quoted four times in the New Testament. First of all, in Romans 4, 1 to 5, we read the following. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is what we're meant to take away from Abraham's life. Not looking at his amazing faith, although that is a lesson we do learn and should emulate. But the main thing we see is what his faith did for him. By believing in God, he was given a righteousness from God. The righteousness that he had before God was not earned. Romans 4 makes it clear. He did not earn this righteousness by his faith. He received this righteousness by his faith. He did not work for it. He trusted for it. He believed for it. And as it was for him, so it will be for us. Romans 4, 20 to 25. No unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. I'll just stop there just a second. I, I make this comment occasionally as we read scriptures. 
Now, if you think about that, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. I mean, is the Holy Spirit lying here? Do you, have you, we, we gave some examples where he wavered. But see, God is a gracious assessor of our lives. And in Christ, he focuses on our righteousness, not on our unrighteousness. <laughs> so he is thinking of Abraham through the righteousness that has been credited to him. And God views us that way. He doesn't view us with all our deficiencies and dirt and grime and imperfections and, oh, we're just creeping along like the worms we are. Praise God for Jesus. No, he views us as righteous in Christ. So the, the things that we can't forget about, God doesn't remember because he relates to us on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And so the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Praise the Lord! But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So listen, if you're here this morning and you are not yet trusting in Christ alone for salvation, this is your verse this morning. This is the way that you will leave here justified, not by working for it, not by a succession of church services, not by ongoing and repeated promises for, to, to make yourself better. Listen, that's not the way it works. Christ, then change, not change, then Christ. Christ comes first, and He's the one who enables us to change. So stop working. Start trusting. Start trusting. Start believing. Start resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will be counted to you who believe in Him who raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus our Lord, and He will be counted for your trespasses, and you will be counted in Him righteous, for He was raised for your justification as well. Yet, while Abraham's faith was the means by which God counted him as righteous, that's not the only way Genesis 15.6 is used in the New Testament. In fact, here's how James uses it. James 2.21-24. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by faith, works and not by faith alone. And now you know why Martin Luther wanted to rip the book of James out of the Bible. <laughs> Don't rip the book of James out of the Bible. There's no contradiction between what James is talking about and what Paul is talking about. The apostle Paul points to Abraham as an example of justifying faith in Romans 4. But the Apostle James points to Abraham as an example of sanctifying faith in James 2. They're, they're, the faith that justifies is a faith that sanctifies. That's all the comparison is making. Nothing more than that. When Genesis 15, 6 says Abraham believed, it's not just referring to a one-time event. In fact, the construction in Hebrew indicates he had been and was continuing to believe. See, we both believe and continue believing. When we believe, 
We are justified in God's sight. And that justification produces a believing that is active and goes on trusting and walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. We both believe and continue continue to believe. And our continuing to believe is evidence that we have believed. Justification is through faith without works, but that kind of saving faith always works. And that's why James can say he was justified by works, not because he's trying to be theologically imprecise or precise on everything. He's just trying to say, look, his faith was not dead. That's James' larger point in James chapter 2. It's not dead faith. It's a living faith. It's a working faith. It's a faith that obeys God. Paul describes the root. James describes the fruit. That's the difference. The root is Paul looking to God out of our ungodliness, saying, would you please give me a righteousness that Christ earned? And he gives it to us. That's the root. That's everything that the fruit hangs on. Without that, no fruit. No fruit. Because unless we're in union with Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, we're not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So we hold, Christ grabs a hold of us, we grab a hold of Christ, and then that root produces fruit. John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And so this chapter ends with God reassuring Abraham that because he passed the test with Isaac, God will keep his promises to him. Look at verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and I have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Reiterating his promise from chapter 12. Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. And he had Isaac with him, just like he said. The divine oath that God gave to Abraham here should not be overlooked because it brings to a climax a process that started with the promises made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God swears by himself that he will accomplish this. Remember the fact these these words in Hebrews chapter 6? For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show how convincing, more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The oath falls into two parts. The first half focuses on Abraham's many descendants, and the second part focuses on a single descendant who will overcome his enemies. Notice verse 17 again. He says, I will surely bless you. I'll surely multiply your offspring. And then he says, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Although the second part of this oath is often taken to refer to all of Abraham's descendants, 
we must remember that Genesis as a whole is interested in tracing a single unique line of offspring that will eventually bring forth a special son. Remember Genesis 3.15? Talking about a son that would crush the head of the serpent. This is the way the rest of the Genesis is going. We're watching that line. How's that line continuing? And this is why Paul writes in Galatians 3.16, guess what? God has kept his promise. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? So from the perspective of the whole Bible, this oath to Abraham comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Genesis 22 was not recorded to inspire sacrifice to God. Instead, it paints a vivid picture of the sacrifice of God, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The reason God didn't kill Isaac or didn't have Abraham kill Isaac is because he had a son to kill himself. The point of this story is not to convince you that you must be willing to sacrifice to God what's most precious to you, but for you to see that God has already sacrificed for you what's most precious to him. Take your son, the only son whom you love, and sacrifice him. Think God, not Abraham. God was willing to sacrifice what was most precious to him, his own beloved son, for you. The connections are so obvious as to almost be allegorical. There's a loving father in the story. There's an obedient son walking toward his death. There's wood strapped on his back. How can we not see Christ here? It's a substitutionary sacrifice narrative. But perhaps even more predictive than those details is the location of this entire event, Mount Moriah, the future site of the temple. This means that the averted sacrifice of Isaac became institutionalized for the people of God throughout generations. As they sacrificed in the temple over and over and over again, Abraham's history and experience became theirs. They offered sacrifices and praised God for his continual over and over provision. And hallelujah, Jesus' death ended all this. His blood decimated any need for a repetitive sacrificial system. There's no need for the sacrifice of Isaac to be institutionalized for us on Mount Moriah because the institution has crumbled. And in its place, there, Jesus, the great temple of God, the Lamb of God, has shed his blood to take away the sins of the world. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, he says, and oh, has he. On this occasion, a ram was provided. The lamb remained for the future. And so the whole episode concludes. Abraham called the place the Lord will provide, and to this day, it said on that mountain, the Lord will will provide. And on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, that emblem of suffering and shame, where God provided the Lamb of God, the offspring of Abraham, the beloved son, the hope of the world. And so the promise extends to us as we become children of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. We're as good as Isaac, brothers and sisters. Galatians 3, 5 to 9 does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's us, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, and we are. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So in this story of our everlasting God, we see a father's love for his son, a son's trust in his father, and a promised blessing being passed down by faith from one generation to the next until it got to us, until it got to you. What mercy from our everlasting God who keeps his everlasting covenant forever. And he promises he's going to bring us all the way home. Because he's an everlasting God, he's not going to lack any power to do that. Isaiah 40, 28 to 31, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And that is because our God is an everlasting God. Moses said it. We sang it in Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Dear ones, God is your safety and security for this life and the life to come. So when chaos threatens, run to him. When strength fails, fall on him. For he alone brings stability and security and shelter and comfort and order. He is our true dwelling place our true home. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you this morning for your word. We are grateful for Genesis 22. We're grateful for the test of Abraham's faith. We're grateful for the example he sets for us. But more than that, we're grateful for the promise that he fulfills. That as you said, you will keep this covenant with him down through every generation until it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Until we became Abraham's offspring by faith in Jesus Christ. And now the gospel that justified Abraham continues to go out to the nations. And we call upon all people, trust in the one that Abraham was looking for. Trust in the true son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, not Isaac, not Jacob, not Joseph, no other physical son of Abraham will do. Only the true son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for entering time as the eternal son of God in your human nature, taking upon yourself the limitations of our humanity in that way and living out a righteousness in your life that we never could have earned because we've broken your law times without number through omission and commission. And thank you that because of your work on the cross and your triumphant resurrection, all those who trust in you are counted righteous with the faith of Abraham. And we become sons of Abraham and heirs according to the promise, a promise that you will keep, a promise that you will never let fail, a promise that you confirmed in Genesis 22 and confirmed in the resurrection of Jesus and have confirmed in your word by your own solemn vows. Lord, may we trust you as our everlasting God. In Christ's name, amen.
Let's stand together.